You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Can I help you, sir? Oh, yeah, I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track like the Maltese Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. Mind if I look at it? Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending. Murder. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly... I like that. I'd like more. That's even better. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Terry Frost. Hey, how you doing, people? Also with me is Mr. Eric Cohen. Like Marlo, I take my brandy in my glass. Welcome to the second in a trio of episodes where we are discussing three variations on Philip Marlowe. We continue our coverage with a discussion of The Big Sleep, the first proper Philip Marlowe book by Raymond Chandler. It was the second appearance of Marlowe on screen, this time being portrayed by Humphrey Bogart. The film was directed by Howard Hawks and adapted by four writers, William Faulkner, I think people have heard of him, Lee Brackett, Jules Firthman, and an uncredited Philip Epstein. It was a showcase for the hot new couple who burned up the screen into have and have not, Bogart and Bacall. And we'll talk about how the movie was changed to play this up. Of course, we will be spoiling this as a film as well as the remake and the book, so be warned. Now, Terry, when was the first time you saw The Big Sleep, and what did you think? Probably on VHS tape, as I recall, because I was going through a Bogart phase, and I got Casablanca on VHS. The Big Sleep, I was a big Chandler fan, and I read the book before I saw the movie. So I had different expectations of it, but it works. I mean, the ensemble works, the relationship between Bogart and McCall works, and I kind of like things down to the set design as well. Uh, there are lots of nice little details in there. And it's solid. It's uh, I'm kind of fonder, I think, of the Dick Powell we talk, talked about last time. But this one, yeah, it does work. It does have a lot going for it. How about you, Eric? I don't remember the first time I saw it. I would like to think the first time I saw it was when I was in high school because I went through a brief private detective phase with movies. And I'm sure that was one of the films I caught during that phase. And I've seen it so many times since then. Uh, I still don't know who killed that damn chauffeur, though. Is that when you would wear a fedora to high school? I had a fedora, 
Never wore it to high school, but not because I was into private dick uh, flicks, because I was into Indiana Jones, baby. I came to this film through my uh, women in cinema class in college, uh, which was taught by Professor Susan White, no relation, who's been on the show quite a few times, and I owe to her a lot of first-time film-watching experiences. Though, when I was watching this movie the first time, I cracked up when it was the scene of Bogart and Bacall and they're kind of prank phone calling this uh, police detective. And when he says the, wait a minute, you better talk to my mother. I laughed out loud because I knew that line from a remix of an Eric B and Rakim song and had no idea what it was from. And then I was like, Oh, okay. It's kind of like when I came to the Maltese Falcon through uh, Ren and Stimpy, you know, and recognize Ren through Peter Lorre. But um, yeah, so I saw this one in college and Professor White was very tuned into, you know, we talked a lot on the last episode about Orientalism and she was very tuned into that. She brought that up a lot in discussions of this movie, of Chinatown, Full Metal Jacket. So we had kind of a running discussion talking about that. Also with Broken Blossoms, the uh, D.W. Griffith film. So there's that I really keyed into a lot of that. And of course we'll be speaking about that as we go through here, but my God, you want to talk about pure Bogart films. I mean, just the dialogue in this movie that he has to say his presence on screen, everything about Bogart just sings in this movie. Now, I don't know if I prefer him over Powell as far as Philip Marlowe, but my goodness, I love him in this movie. Yeah, he's really, really good in this. And he's a star. He was a strange-looking fellow, but somehow he just radiated star charisma. And, and this film, more more than any other, I think, he really is the solid lead. You just can't keep your eyes off of him. And he's so in tune with the screenplay in terms of the dialogue. It just, it's just this rat-a-tat-tat delivery. I agree. I prefer Dick Powell as a more – I see him more of Marlowe when I read the books – Bogart is very good as this lead. We all know he played like another sort of iconic private detective, Sam Spade, and how this is sort of the yin to uh, the Sam Spade that is his yang, right? Sam Spade is corruptible and kind of a dick, whereas Philip Marlowe, he's a little more stable and together, and he's prone to do the right thing regardless. And it's a very confident performance on Bogart's part. The confidence of Bogart comes brings to that one, and just how... In character, he is. I could have done with a bit less tugging his earlobe because there's a lot of that in there. It's a character trait. I don't know whether he had an ear infection at the time or what, but there's a little too much of that, and it kind of took me out of it. But one of the problems I have, and this is only a small caveat, is that there's a difficulty separating Marlowe from Bogart because Bogart's presence as an actor was so large. You kind of go, okay, that's Bogart. You don't go, that's Marlowe, in the same way you might have with the Dick Powell one. There's a kind of, you know, a, a Bogartness about it that really kind of shines through. It doesn't take away from the film at all, but it makes it a very different viewing experience than the previous movie. There are a lot of apocryphal stories when it comes to The Big Sleep, and we'll try to separate those out as we're talking about this. Like, of course, we'll talk about the chauffeur, and we'll talk about the story around the chauffeur and all these things. As far as what I read when it came to the ear tugging, that was something that Bogart and Hawks worked out beforehand. And it was kind of like almost like a listening gesture. But again, 
that could be 100% bullshit. Like you don't know when it comes to this stuff because reading all the stuff that I read about this, it's like, okay, yeah, there's the famous story about the chauffeur, but then when you actually read the different versions of the script, it's pretty much plain as day that we were going to have Brody have the murder pinned on him. But at the same time, who cares? You know, it's that thing that I talked about last week. It doesn't really matter. It could have been Brody. It could have been suicide. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, like him telling this whole story of like, oh, we were drinking and we send this telegram and blah, blah, blah. It's like the story changed over the years and just got more and more outrageous as it went along. So, and the whole idea of like, telegraphing the the writer telegraphing Chandler and being like who killed the chauffeur it's like there's something that's very fun about it and I won't try to take away the fun I'm not going to try to piss all over people and say like no on page you know 95 right there it said what was going to happen or in this version of the screenplay I'm not going to try to do that kind of stuff I'm not I'm not going to take away your your stories your childhood I'm not George Lucas I'm not here to ruin anything so just enjoy yourselves. That's the only thing I, I ask is just enjoy yourselves. Yeah, it is kind of an entertainment, and we've got to remember that because with Bogart, things get so iconic very fast for cinephiles that you can forget that this movie is basically there to keep you amused for an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes. It's not a holy scripture in any way. It's just um, an entertainment which happens to star probably one of the most charismatic movie stars of the 20th century. I had no idea until the DVD of this came out that there were multiple versions of this film. And I apparently during my reading, they released one of the, the earlier version, they'll call it the pre-release version. They released that on VHS. So it was, it's been around for a while apparently, but I didn't know about it until the DVD release when there were a lot of articles being written about it. And then it wasn't until this time viewing it that I actually sat down and watched that version and the companion piece as far as these are some of the differences and then read a lot about it as well. I just, I didn't want to have another version tainting my perceptions for a long time, but I was actually okay with it. And I, I found it more fascinating than I found it disruptive. And then at the same time, I was like seeing some things that actually made more sense in the pre-release version, but then there are times where they would refer to scenes in the pre-release version that weren't even there. So whether those were filmed and not kept or whatever. So we'll, we'll talk about that as we go along. The one thing I wanted to say, you know, we're talking about Bogart as this star personality. The whole movie starts with the silhouette of him and Bacall and the cigarettes, you know, like putting the cigarettes down in the ashtray. It's such this sex scene that's happening right there in the opening credits. And then all of the women who are just throwing themselves at Humphrey Bogart. It is amazing. Rewatching this again last night, noticing when he even goes to this waitress at one point, ask her to light a cigarette again with the cigarettes. And she just like pauses there on screen, like almost like she's been captivated, like a deer in the headlights or something. And it's just like every woman is looking this guy up and down with perhaps the exception of Agnes. I think she might be the only one who avoids his uh, being captivated by him. Yeah, he's such a ladies' man in this. It's like that scene when he's at the cab driver picks him up, it's kind of funny, and you just find yourself, I mean, th- you know, thanks to Humphrey Bogart's, you know, charisma, you go with it. 
But at the same time, I found myself in certain moments rewatching this, kind of squinting and saying, huh, is, is Bogart that good looking? Uh, trying to figure that out. Because, like, every single woman he meets seems to want to, you know, flirt with him. You know, the bookstore clerk, all, all those all those characters. I like Dorothy Malone playing the bookstore clerk, though. The one bit of it I don't like, there's, there's a great chemistry between them, oddly enough. And it works really well, and Dorothy Malone puts it across. And then after we presume they've gone into the back room and done the dirty deed, he just pats her on the arm and walks out. I mean, yeah, peck on the cheek at least. Give her something. That's a weird scene. In hindsight, it's it's unnecessary. It didn't need to be there. There's ways that they could have had uh, Marlowe spying on, on the other store in another way from his car or something like that. And yet they had this whole scene that was fully scripted with this character. And you almost think this character is going to turn up later. They put so much emphasis on their dynamic. And yet that's it. It's like this throwaway scene. It's the first instance, too, of him fixing a woman, which I found interesting as far as him having her take her glasses off and how she puts down her hair. And then he gives her the, oh, hello, kind of thing. She looked so good when he walked into the bookstore. She looks as good without the glasses and and the hair down. I can't be serious having sex or any sort of, you know, dialogue with you while you're wearing those glasses and while your hair is up in this bun. It's so nice. And, you know, the whole movie ends with the, you know, what's the matter with you? Nothing that you can't fix. And it's like, okay, yeah, Marlowe is there to fix the women around him. And that's kind of what he does with a lot of this stuff. Just talking about the women for a moment, there's something that I found really odd. We've got Martha Vickers playing the younger daughter of General Sternwood, Carmen. And you've got Laura Bacall playing the older one, Vivian. I think Martha Vickers and Dorothy Malone are a lot sexier in this movie than Bacall is. Even though there is that great chemistry between her and Bogart, looking at it from at least my point of view, I liked Martha Vickers' character being playful like that. And I liked the Dorothy Malone character, even like the cab driver. But Bacall, even though they had that racing track dialogue in there, which is kind of a cute rapport between Marlowe and Vivian, I still think the other two women are a lot more interesting in some ways. I really like that cab driver. I always thought she was very cute. And especially her whole... Hey, uh, sugar, buy yourself a cigar. If you can use me again sometime, call this number. Day and night? Uh, night's better. I work during the day. It's a nice touch in a, in a weird kind of way. I don't know if they intended it, but I was going to like make a reference to World War II. But, we, but, they, but when the novel was written, it wasn't... Uh, it was 1938, 1939 when it was published, I think. But the movie takes place in a time when we're approaching the end of the war. So there would be, you know, women would be working in, in roles like a cab driver. Yeah, there's a lot of wartime references in the movie, even though it wasn't released until VJ Day might have already even happened by the time this movie comes out. Because it was sitting on a shelf for, I think, 18 months is what they say. And I'm not sure exactly why it was shelled for so long, but there was this whole push by Bacall's agent to get Hawks to shoot new footage because he didn't think some of the scenes worked. And it's interesting to see what those new scenes are. You know, Terry, you just talked about the horse dialogue. That's some of the new stuff and pumping up that relationship between Bacall and Bogart, even though that was already being pumped up by the screenplay, because there are times where 
the Vivian uh, Sternwood character, or Vivian Regan, or in this version, Vivian Rutledge, <laughs> she is showing up places where she shouldn't be or places that she wasn't in the book. So things like her being at Joe Brody's apartment, she's not there in the book. Her being with Mona Mars at the end, she's not there in the book. So already she's taking on a larger role, and then they just bolstered that even more by some of these reshoots. And it's kind of an awkward inclusion to have her in that scene where, where she's in the the uh, the hideaway house, Eddie Mars hideaway house. It, it feels like they kind of force her in there. Yeah, if there's one thing that doesn't necessarily make sense, it to me it's more that than the chauffeur. Because I know there's a mention of like, oh, they found Eddie, he's in Mexico. And then she shows up at the hideaway house and it's like, I'm not exactly sure why you're here, but I'm just going to go with it makes her character a little more kind of nebulous as well. Yeah, why is she with Eddie Mars? We don't get a clear picture of that because the rapport between her and Bogart is so great. It kind of weakens the character toward the end when she says, you know, nothing you can't fix and that kind of thing. You really don't get a strong sense of what her motivations are anywhere in the film, apart from at the start when she's trying to protect her sister. Right, and that it is Vivian Rutledge and not Vivian Regan takes away this whole idea of I'm looking for my husband and my husband was running around with Eddie Morris's wife. So there's that tension that's in there. And with her being Mrs. Rutledge and Sean Regan, rather than Rusty Regan, him being a separate character from who he is in the, in the book makes him even more of a, to use your word, Terry, nebulous character, because it's like, who is this guy? He has no ties to anybody other than him being an ex-bootlegger, telling stories to General Sternwood. And then it's interesting that they tie him and Marlo together by this whole idea of Marlo, when he was a cop, trading shots between bullets or bullets between shots, I think he says, which is a nice little turn of phrase. But that they give them more of a pass than they have with Regan and, and uh, Vivian Rutledge. And why is Elijah Cook Jr. in there at all? I mean, he serves one plot purpose, but it could have been served another way. And he comes in there as a kind of deadpan character, and then he's quickly gotten rid of. Even though I love Elijah Cook Jr. in most of the things I've seen him in, in this one, he's an odd inclusion. Well, it's a nice touch in the sense that he was in uh, The Maltese Falcon. It's kind of like this reunion, this sort of film noir reunion between Bogart and Cook Jr. It is an integral character in a novel. He shows up in the remake as well. You know, it's, it's also, it, it leads, it leads Marlowe to this henchman of Eddie Mars, which in turn leads him to that flat tire, which in turn leads him to being captured in a house. I didn't have a, an issue with Elijah Cook's appearance as much as I did with the weird ways they tried to sort of shoehorn Lauren Bacall in scenes to capitalize on their dynamic. Well, it doesn't help the Elijah Cook Jr. stuff that there are multiple scenes where this Harry Jones character that he's playing shows up in the book. So Marlo uh, shakes his tail twice. So this whole idea of like this coop that's following him is made a little bit bigger of a difference uh, in the book. And then he meets with him talks with him for a long time and then meets is supposed to meet him again later on to get the information about Eddie Mars's wife. And 
that's when the whole Camino character is in there as, and it seems like that is really, really compressed in the movie. I like the way that it's shot. I like the way that they use the uh, silhouettes and everything, but it just seems very, very short. And even the whole idea of like Harry giving up the information about where Agnes is. I mean, it's like, maybe four times as long in the book. And the book ripples. The book goes along really fast. I'm in the middle right now of of uh, listening to The Long Goodbye. And The Long Goodbye is twice as long as these other books are. And it feels it. If I can, There are many scenes where I'm listening to it. I'm just like, gosh, we didn't need any of this stuff. I didn't need like three pages hearing about this guy's eyebrows. You know, there's just, there's a lot of stuff that could be cut here. I know that he was going for more of a serious fiction at that point, but I don't think serious fiction necessarily requires length. And I think that he could have done some other things. You know, you read a, a Travis McGee book and they're probably not even as long as a, a Chandler book and they are just as serious, if not even more. So it's like, yeah, I don't think seriousness equates to length necessarily. He needed a good editor and because he was so successful, the editors tend to back off at that stage. Yeah. He had a, a, a sort of this compulsive obsessive obsessiveness with detail, which may have reflected Chandler's personality. But, I mean, he rather infamously wore white gloves all the time. I would say if there's an author that that kind of reminds me of Chandler in certain ways, I wouldn't put him up in this level. But Ian Fleming, if you read those Bond novels, he's very compulsive obsessive when it comes to what Bond is having for breakfast, how he likes to have his breakfast, you know, this kind of thing. And so there's a similar kind of like this almost compulsive, obsessive attention to detail and, and just going over things. Did anybody notice the product placement in the movie? No, do tell. Uh, there's a moment where you can see that uh, Marlowe is smoking Chesterfields. Most of the time the packet's edge on and you can't really get the detail. But there's one bit, it's almost like Bogart copped a whole bunch of free cigarettes. So I love the way that we're introduced to this story, the whole idea of him Going up into that upper echelon world. We talked about that when we talked about Murder My Sweet and Marlowe didn't necessarily mix with the upper crust when it came to Murder My Sweet. Farewell, farewell, my lovely, even though we do have a little bit of the husband, but in this, it is really squarely put in that upper echelon as far as him going up, meeting with General Sternwood. And it's interesting how so much of his action is dependent upon making sure General Sternwood isn't upset and really abiding by his code, not telling Vivian what's going on between he and his father and her father, the coat to the private eye. And then also just when he finds things out, talking only to Norris about them, not talking to her. And then also just, you know, I don't want to upset the old man kind of thing. And he really does so much to protect the Sternwood name. And he knows that Sternwood has these two wild daughters and comes right out and tells him that right at the beginning. So it's interesting, though, that that he has such respect for this man who he really hasn't met before. But I think, again, it's kind of like, you know, his liege in this uh, particular case. If he is a knight, then that is, you know, the king that he is serving in this instance. The impression I've got, and there's a great scene at the start between um, Charles Waldron playing General Sternwood and Humphrey Bogart playing Marlowe. I think Marlowe, the character, kind of respects the honesty with which General Sternwood talks about his life. And the fact that he's got no bullshit in him at this stage, he's an old man, he knows he's dying, and he's got nothing to fear and nothing to hide, in a sense. 
and that really kind of worked for me. I like the detail of how uh, Marlo is sweating during that whole scene, which is a which is a really unique way to introduce your male protagonist, right? Especially in a film in the forties. Yeah, great continuity too, because it gets sweatier and sweatier as the scenes go on. And not only is he there sweating in that, but before that, he kind of wasn't necessarily a black eye that he got, but it was an embarrassing situation that he was in with Carmen, though I think Norris the butler definitely knew what was going on as far as that went. But this whole thing of her flirting just terribly with Marlowe, and then when she does that trust fall into his arms, and that's when Norris, of course, walks out and is like, the general will see you now. But yeah, I'm sure that Norris is seen much worse in his position there. I thought it was interesting. I, I read the the screenplay, how it was originally written that he was sitting in a chair and she sits on his lap and he pushes her away, that they decide to restage it with him, she just, with her just falling into his arms. And they literally remade that moment in the Robert Mitchum remake. And it was filmed much better in the original because I watched the rem- that part of the remake and it's badly framed and, and badly done with Candy Clark and, and Mitchum. I do like Martha Vickers in this. I think that uh, she she was really fun in this movie. She was great. And this whole thing that she does with her thumb and sucking on her thumb and biting on her thumb and the whole you're cute thing, their rapport at the beginning is fantastic. Like him with his whole doghouse Riley thing that he does and just all of that dialogue at the beginning there is so great. You're not very tall, are you? Well, I, uh, I tried to be. Not bad. Probably no. Thank you. What's your name? Riley. Doghouse Riley. <laughs> That's a funny kind of name. Think so? Uh, what are you? A prize fighter? No, I'm a shaman. What's a shaman? It's a private detective. You're making fun of me. Uh huh. <laughs> You're cute. And then the rapport that he has with, with uh, Vivian Sternwood later on is is great as well. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you? <clears throat> I'm not very tall either. Next time I'll come on stilts, wear a white tie, and carry a tennis racket. I doubt if even that would help. Now, this business of Dad's, think you can handle it for him? That shouldn't be too tough. Really? I would have thought a case like that took a little effort. Not too much. What will your first step be? The usual one. I didn't know there was a usual oh, one. Oh, sure there is. It comes complete with diagrams on page 47 of how to be a detective in 10 easy lessons, correspondence, school textbook, and uh, your father offered me a drink. You must have read another one on how to be a comedian. You hear what I said about the drink? I'm quite serious, Mr. Marlowe. My father can't father... help yourself. You know, I don't see what there is to be cagey about, Mr. Marlowe. And I don't like your manners. Well, I'm not crazy about yours. I didn't ask to see you. I don't mind if you don't like my manners. I don't like them myself. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them long winter evenings, and I don't mind your ritzing me or drinking your lunch out of a bottle. But don't waste your time trying to cross-examine me. People don't talk to me like that. Oh. That's the thing that I noticed right away. I took the opportunity to read the script that you supplied for us before I rewatched the film. And in the script, when he first meets Vivian Sternwood, she's wearing a skirt, and, a, and it's described in, in, the, in the stage directions, he, he looks at her legs. You know, she has these beautiful legs, right? But in the movie, she's wearing pants. You do get that scene with the skirt later on when they're sitting in his office, and she wants to scratch her knee, and he goes, just scratch, which is kind of <laughs> nuts. I like that level of intimacy in, the, in an 
a kind of abstract way. Yeah, I have to say that the screenplay really stuck to the book pretty well in a lot of cases. And again, those moments that we talk about with the dialogue, I mean, of course, they changed it from you're not very tall from you're very tall because Bogart is a lot shorter than the six foot one that Marlowe is supposed to be. But a lot of these lines, like I was t- saying, like how he goes home and grieves about his bad manners, that's pure Chandler. And they knew they were smart enough to keep those things in there. And when they don't have Chandler providing dialogue or providing, it's interesting here. We don't have voiceover that we talked a lot last week about the voiceover of Marlowe. We don't have that though. We stick so close to Humphrey Bogart that we are never apart from him, which is interesting. So it's almost like first person POV, you know, not quite like lady in the lake or anything, but we are there with him every single time. Those moments that they stray away from him. I mean, we do have Lee Brackett and uh, William Faulkner in the driver's seat on this and them being able to provide dialogue is just fantastic stuff. I mean, like I said, that prank phone call scene is one of my favorites and that is not in the book at all. And that is a great moment of bonding between our two characters because they don't really bond in the book. This whole idea of them falling in love, that doesn't happen in the book. There's none of that stuff. There's like a moment where they might kind of get together, but it's more Vivian manipulating Marlowe than it is any sort of genuine feeling. And with this, it feels like it might be a genuine thing at the end of the film. A lovely Brecht's work. I've got a number of her novels and a seen a number of other things. I mean, she did Rio Bravo, amongst other things, with Hawks. When having a female viewpoint in this, I think, benefits the film. And having somebody who's so grounded in pulp writing the way Lee Brackett was, apart from her screenplay work, it strengthens things. Of course, she later on went to have a career low with writing a script for a Star Wars movie. But apart from that, she's done fantastically well. Even then, I think that she managed to do the first draft of Empire, and then they brought in Kasdan to do subsequent drafts. So I think she gets sole screenwriting credit for that, but unfortunately she passed before it even entered production, which is sad. Kasdan got most of the credit for that, actually. She did write an initial draft, but Lawrence Kasdan did like a final polish and got credit for it. But I was going to say, speaking of scripting and dialogue and all that stuff, I think a little interesting sort of side trivia note. In The Big Sleep, they go through great pains to retain Chandler's dialogue. Whereas when Chandler worked as the screenwriter on The Postman Always Rings Twice, which was a James M. Kane novel, he got into vicious arguments with Billy Wilder over not retaining any of the dialogue from the novel. To the extent where Billy Wilder got some uh, actors together, read dialogue straight out of the book to prove that Chandler was wrong, and it turned out that Chandler was right. The dialogue didn't work. So there's only one line in the entire movie that's purely James M. Kane, but the entire film is Chandler. You said Postman Always Rings Twice. Is that oh, right? Not Postman Always Rings Twice. I'm sorry. Uh, double Indemnity. Because I was like, I know when you said Wilder, I was like, I don't think that was him for that. Okay. You, All right. you are absolutely correct, and I was wrong. Anyway, that was Bob Rifelson that did the Postman Always Rings Twice, wasn't it? Just, oh, God, I'm messing with you. He did, he did the third version. <laughs> Here we are in 19, say, 45 when we're making this movie, and we have to cover up so many things because of the production code. So 
you can't be 100% true to the novel because you have to obfuscate things or tell them encoded messages to the audience, such as Arthur Gwynne Geiger is a homosexual and Carol Lundgren is his lover. We can't come right out and say that at this point. So we have to code it. And how do we code it? The same way that we talked about last week, we code it with Oriental themes. So we code it with Arthur Gwynne Geiger's house being just lousy with Asian themes in there. We code it with him having a Fu Manchu mustache. We code it with the camera that shot Carmen in that elaborate chair being inside of the head of a Buddha and being one of the eyes of the Buddha head. And that also has this visual rhyme between the Buddha head having the one eye that's glass and and him, Arthur Geiger himself, having one eye that's glass as well. And so we have all of these things. And then when we talked about uh, the Maltese Falcon, about Wilmer and what a weird feminized type name Wilmer is. And here we have Carol being the guy's lover in this and him having, you know, getting revenge against Joe Brody uh, because he thinks that Joe Brody shot Mr. Geiger. So yeah, it's interesting to see the way that they can't necessarily tell these things or, you know, they, they pretty much come right out in the book and say that Carmen is a nymphomaniac. We can't necessarily say that in the movie. So we just have her as very flirtatious. So <laughs> there's only so much we can do here, folks. And also Carol wearing that really tight leather jacket, which is a, you know, kind of codes things a little bit to the choice of clothing there. Really works um, to convey what they can't convey. Yeah, he's like rough trade. I hate the production code. The more movies I see that are kind of twisted by it, the more I, I loathe the bloody thing. It's funny because I kind of like the way that they have to tell the stories without telling the story. You know, it's, it's kind of to me like watching, uh, movies from Czechoslovakia when it's under communist rule and the way that they will tell all these stories about Nazis and the Nazis are stand-ins for the communists, but they can get away with it by telling it one way and not the other. So I always like, I like when art has to bump up against censorship barriers and then figure out ways around it. But, at the same time, I do kind of appreciate the bodiness of the pre-code days and just seeing movies where they can be not literally balls out, but pretty darn close. My problem with that is they spend so much effort going around the production code and that effort could be put to other means, which may have been strengthened the films. The fact that they had to have these battles with censors and with studio censors and then with Hayes' office and all of that took up a lot of the energy that could have been used in other ways. I've talked about this character of Joe Brody a few times and Brody's an interesting character because he comes up through dialogue in that first meeting with General Sternwood and then we finally meet Joe Brody and he's moved in as soon as Geiger is dead he's moved in on Geiger's business and Geiger is selling pornographic books and again we can't say that he's selling pornographic books so we have to shy away from that. And I think and we'll talk about this in the second half of the show. I think pornography in 1944, 45, 46 is so much different than pornography in 1978 that, <laughs> that it is much more of a big deal. And you couldn't just walk into a liquor store and look at the rack that's behind the, the cardboard divider kind of thing and say, yes, I'll take one of those, one of those, one of those. So it's a big deal that this is what he's doing here. And so I love the scene with Joe Brody. And I, I the, the reason why I was talking about the, the chauffeur and 
the chauffeur's death being, you know, questionable and all that is that when you watch the scene with Joe Brody, and especially if you read the scene with Joe Brody, Marlo just keeps hammering at him and just keeps going at it. And every time he tries a new approach, Brody changes his story and he gives him a little bit more, a little bit more and a little bit more. And I think if he had had five more minutes with Brody, then Brody would have admitted that he had killed Owen Taylor, the chauffeur of the Stern Woods, rather than where he leaves it. Because when he leaves it, he gets up and answers the door and gets shot by uh, Carol Lundgren. But, you know, he was there like basically saying, I left this guy blackjacked in the hills and then I walked away and he was fine when I left him, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I think, you know, one more round of questioning and he would have folded like a deck of cards. I'm amused by the hamminess of how Joe Brody keeps evading Marlowe's stare. Every time Marlowe is questioning him, he keeps, it's not like he can't just like look at the floor as he's answering questions. No, he has to shift his entire body in one direction and then the other and Bogart, the actor, is just following his body throughout the whole interrogation scene. And that kind of works to, to up the intensity of it as well, that the kind of physicality reflecting the evasiveness really does kind of work in this. I was just looking at a, a review of this film, which, um, to go off on a different tangent for a moment, Bosley Crowther did a review of this in 1945, where they were talking about Bacall and, and her role in this film. And Crowther says, Miss McCall is a dangerous-looking female, but she hasn't learned to act. Yeah, the critics hated Bacall. And the odd thing is, too, that Howard Hawks hated Bogart because he said he was the most insolent actor he'd ever worked with, and he was married to a, an insolent woman. So in spite of that, they got the film done. But there really was some animosity there. I never would have thought that. I think it was Andrew Saris or somebody like that who quoted that. I mean, I believe it, but I never would have thought that just because he gives such a fine performance and this film is so well directed that usually that kind of tension ends up coming through somehow. But I mean, or I'm used to very public fights over the last, I don't know, 30 years where you hear about this stuff going on. Maybe they actually manage to keep it a little bit more quiet, keep it on the DL or the QT as it were. This is a quintessential Howard Hawks flick, too. Uh, Howard Hawks loves dialogue. He loves strong characters playing off each other. It gets lumped in into the whole film noir thing, but a lot of the film takes place in light. There are very few scenes that are actually at night, or if it's an evening time, they're indoors in like bright locations like a nightclub and a casino and stuff like that. Uh, and I, I just that's the one thing I also kind of struck me watching this recently for the for the podcast was, wow, this is a very bright noir. Yeah, compare it, especially versus Murder, My Sweet, where I mean, the, the first five minutes of Murder, My Sweet is a study in noir. And then you watch this and you're just like, I've never really seen those deep shadows. You know, I think I saw more of the deep shadow photography in something like Scarface that Hawks did than I did necessarily in this. And I, I think, I think Scarface is much more stylized to the point of humor almost sometimes with the, those X's that represent the deaths in the movie. Whereas in this, it feels much more, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, bringing a baby or, or, uh, his girl Friday as far as the, the lighting schema. It's not 
nearly as dark to your point as, as what we were seeing in other films noir. This is more just a detective movie than a film noir detective movie. Even the scenes where Bogart's, well, Marlowe is driving around in the rain and the bit where he goes to the garage for nighttime scenes, they are fairly well lit. There's not too much kind of black and white in there, but there's a lot of gray. And um, it seemed like a slightly odd choice. I would have liked a lot more darkness in some of those scenes, I think. Yeah, that scene when he's in the uh, mechanic shop, that is the closest Hawks gets to to the expressionism we usually associate with the genre, where it's like low lighting and, and there's a sinister feel to the whole thing. And uh, because this is probably the least expressionistic of, of all the sort of films that we associate with this, this sort of period of genre. Yeah, and I would say that this is much more reliant on that Hoxian type dialogue delivery. And again, it's coming right out of Chandler with a lot of this stuff. I mean, the whole thing of... Who are you, soldier? Marla's my name. I'm a private detective. Who's the girl? A client of mine. Geiger tried to throw a loop on us, so we came up here to talk things over. Convenient. The door being open when you didn't have a key. Huh? Yeah, wasn't it? By the way, how'd you happen to have one? Is that any of your business? I could make it my business. I could make your business mine. Well, you wouldn't like it. The pay's too small. The delivery is something out of His Girl Friday, but the lines are coming from Chandler. So it's really nice that we have that quick rapport going on and that Bogart can just, he can spit that out as fast as he gets it. I've always been curious that strange thing of Eddie Mars's boys, Pete and Sidney, and the uh, one guy, Tom Fadden, the, the actor, when he's like, All right, outside. The shamas. The man said outside. He said that. That's what the man said. He said that. I swear that that feels like it's from something else, but I'm not exactly sure um, <laughs> what's going on there. Like, I was trying to look up certain things from the movie yesterday, like Doghouse Riley. I was like, is that a reference to another character or something? But I couldn't find anything, and I couldn't find a reference to that's what the man said. Their dynamic reminds me of the relationship between the two detectives in the Falcon movie that we reviewed the last episode. I was thinking more that they were the prototype of Fante and Mingo in the big combo because they were close and one of them was there to keep the other one company. But that's just me going off on a tangent. I was kind of hoping those guys would show up again to beat the shit out of Marlowe before he goes to see um, Elijah Cook Jr. But I, apparently it's two other guys. I was looking at them very closely last night. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, those are two other hoodlums that just show up. So I've always been curious too, speaking of language, I've always been curious as far as when certain words change their pronunciation. Like as I was listening to uh, the big sleep over the weekend and I kept hearing the author read the type of car as being a coupe and they kept saying coupe in the movie. And then it, I'm just like, Oh, you mean a coupe? Okay. When did we lose the accent on coupe? Yes. And I was obsessed with the use of the word. I always thought it was Seamus and they keep saying Shamus. Yeah. So who's right? I mean, are we, did we change it at some point, or are we just saying it wrong in 2018? Maybe a little deuced coupe, you know, the Beach Boys might have changed it. Who knows? Oh, yeah, little deuced coupe would have sounded completely different. Yeah, there's one point where he calls somebody a grafter, and I was like, I think you mean grifter? But, yeah, it could be wrong. It could be like paying somebody a graft. Yeah, and I, I was... Glad that the very open homophobia of Chandler doesn't come out in the movie. <laughs> As I was listening to the book and Marlo was talking about how when Carol Lundgren punched him, that it didn't really affect him at all because, and I quote, a pansy has no iron in his bones. I was like, 
okay, yeah, this was earlier in the forties, wasn't it? This, yeah. And we could talk about Chandler and his um his own sexuality and his own proclivities and his own weirdnesses, but that's in a whole other podcast. Oh my god, there was one book I read where it just felt like the guy had the author had a vendetta against another author who was questioning Chandler's sexuality. And it was just like, well, no, it's not like that at all. No, he's, you know, he's a man's man. I was just like, me don't think you protest too much. The, the one thing I found interesting was reading more about how this was filmed during the war and how some of the war stuff came in. I mean, we probably all noticed the B sticker on uh, Chandler's window, you know, saying that, you know, he, how much fuel he gets and stuff, right? Marlowe's car, thank you. When he calls up Bernie Oles and he says, how are you fixed for red points? I didn't realize that red points were like tickets for meat rations. So I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. Basically referring to these dead bodies as pieces of meat. So that was kind of a nice twist on that one. Which the audience would have got at the time, but we didn't until it was looked up, yeah. It was one of those where they just kind of passed it by so quickly. I was I was like, okay, I guess he means dead bodies, but I didn't get the, uh, you know, I was like thinking maybe it was some, like the big board at the police station, you know, how they have like the, the murder tally kind of thing. Like, oh, the red points must be how many murders have taken care of this month. <laughs> I was making up my whole whole thing about what was happening down at Bernie Oles' office. And we got Regis Toomey playing Bernie Oles, too. And you know, he was in a crazy amount of television when I was a kid. Uh, he was in Petticoat Junction playing a judge and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So it was good to see him again. I'm so glad that you dropped Petticoat Jun- Junction's name on here because I talk about that show all the time. Nobody seems to know what the hell I'm talking about. I'll, I'll make references to that, to Green Acres. I'll talk about Mr. Haney. Nobody knows who I'm talking about. Arnold the Pig. I did watch the pre-war or pre-release version of it, which apparently was shown in the Philippines and Luzon to some GIs. I'm not sure who else got to see that version, but that was the version that was shelved for a while. And it was interesting to see some of the differences that are in there, you know, that, like I said, the, the racing dialogue is not in there. There's more stuff when it comes to Bernie Oles and there's this whole meeting that takes place, um, at the district attorney's office. And basically it's a summation of everything that's gone on before. And we talked about that last week when we talked about murder, my suite, how there are points in the film points in the books as well, where we try to sum everything up. And then we move on. And with The Big Sleep, it's very easy to do that because for all intents and purposes, there's one case that Marlowe's on, and then there's another case that Vivian thinks that he's on, and eventually he shifts to that case. But really, the whole thing with Geiger trying to blackmail them, that is over maybe midway through the film. And then we do this narrative shift to what happened to Sean Regan. The first time I ever watched this movie, I was kind of confused as far as like, well, how does this tie into Geiger's death? It doesn't. You know, the, the Geiger stuff is done. It basically put him on the path and now he's going. And again, this comes from the big sleep originally, much like Farewell My Lovely, the, the second book that Chandler, uh, managed to write. Again, it's a cannibalization of several short stories, different pieces being put together in this kind of patchwork style. So it makes sense that the Geiger case is 
one short story, and the Regan case is another short story, and he blends the two of them together in a very skillful way. And so there is this natural stopping point where in the pre-release version, they kind of sum everything up. Who killed this guy? Who killed that guy? Okay, we've got these two dead bodies. Marlo, get out of my office. Boom, we're done. And then it's Vivian trying to sugar him off the case. Like, here's your check for $500. You're done with this. My dad says you're done with this. That's it. Quit your investigation. And that just eggs him on even more to... Let's look into this Regan thing that everybody seems to think I'm investigating, but I really wasn't initially. In Murder My Sweet, there's an antagonism between Marlo and the cops that's just totally absent in this film. Um, it's almost like he's working to help the cops in a, in a big way, and his friendship with Bernie is part of that and all that kind of thing. And then when we later Marlo films, which we're going to talk about next week, that antagonism is back there. It's, it's like they kind of took a breather for the war effort. Yeah, I mean, Bernie Oles can be a friend, but the other cops definitely are not. But then we kind of eliminate the other cops that are in this as far as the released version. We eliminate some of those roles completely. So we do only have the friendly cop, really. So yeah, it's it's an interesting way of going about it. And like I said, there are certain things that end up in the movie regardless of whether you're talking about the pre-release version or the released version there are bits of dialogue that are still in there that refer to things that aren't in any version of the movie. Like Eddie Mars at one point, Eddie Mars is this gangster who is involved with Vivian Rutledge. And he says at one point, yeah, I know you went to the missing persons bureau to ask them about Regan. And yeah, that takes place in the book, but it, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, it doesn't take place in the movie. So you're just like, Oh, okay. And then in the, pre-release version, they make reference at the end of the film of like, well, you've seen what Carmen is like when she gets refused her her amorous intentions. And in that version, they don't have the scene of Carmen coming in and trying to woo Marlo towards the end of the movie. That's just eliminated. Carmen drops out of this movie really early and never really comes back. And she's there in the second to last scenes of the book, but she's just eliminated from the movie much more in favor of let's make sure there's more Lauren Bacall in here. Which is a real shame because I, I still like Martha Vickers a lot more than I like Lauren Bacall in this movie. Though Martha Vickers doesn't get a chance to sing in this movie. And of course we have the obligatory song number. You know, I thought we were going to have that with murder. My sweet, we managed to dodge that bullet, but luckily this isn't too bad of a song. No, and she doesn't get dubbed by Andy Williams the way she did in to have and have not. Is that true? It's true. He was part of the Williams brothers. that were acting. He had a kind of higher voice. And so wow. he actually did the singing for Lauren McCall into have and have not. Well, last week I found out that Cesar Romero was gay, and this fi- week you find out that Andy Williams dubbed over Lauren McCall. I mean, we're both learning a lot of things on this show. My work here is done. When Harry Jones, the Elijah Cook Jr. character, when he bites it, it's a weird scene, because I would not expect Lash Camino, the big baddie, who in this version is absolutely terrifying with those those crazy ears that that actor has, the way they kind of go down and stuff. That guy, the actor that played Camino, had such an interesting career, and I was looking at old pictures of him to, to kind of see where he started to get that look, because he was 
kind of a handsome guy in the early days when he was doing old, old, old uh, six-shooter westerns, and then he moved more into the gangster roles, and he plays such a great heavy in here. They make a, a point of saying that he lives by a cyanide factory in the book, and I don't think that makes it into the movie. So him poisoning Harry Jones is like, why would he poison him rather than just shooting this guy? I'm watching it, I keep thinking, it's like a scene out of Johnny Dangerously. Where it's, it's almost satirical, where it's like, nah, have some water. No, I don't want any water. No, have some water. It's just water. No, I don't want any water. You know, it's like it's just fucking water. And then when he dies of, dies from drinking, I was like, whoa, he, he, he was this like Flint water? I mean, what's going on here? Because there's like, when would he have poisoned it? I mean, it's, it's just a really odd scene. It's in a weird way. I mean, as we're, we're going to get into it later, as terrible as the 78 version is. At least you understand why he was poisoned from, you know, his drink or how it happened. But here it's like, I don't understand what's going on. Where did he get the water? Was it from like, you know, you know, did he just like go to a faucet and have me poisoned? It was just just an odd scene. And what kind of mother names a kid Lash? Lash Canino. Mother was a dominatrix. Yeah. It's interesting the way that this one has like two endings because we have an ending that takes place at. Uh, the place where they're keeping Mrs. Mars, who is not really a character in this movie. They mention her a lot in the book, and then she just kind of shows up in the movie. Like, we know that Sean was in, it was in cahoots with her. I mean, this whole, the Sean Regan stuff just really isn't as prevalent as it is in the book either. So it's like this constant thing of like, you know, you're looking for Regan, you're looking for Regan in the book here. They do talk about it a lot, but I don't know if they necessarily talk about it enough. And again, that there's not that connection to Vivian also keep it, keeps it more separated, especially because he's not constantly calling her Mrs. Regan. He's calling her Mrs. Rutledge. Inevitably, we get to this place where they're keeping Mona Mars, where we have Lash Camino as a threat that is going to be coming back any moment, probably out digging a grave right now for Marlowe. And yeah, this weird intrusion of Vivian into someplace where she really shouldn't necessarily be. It's, I also find it interesting that between the two versions of this, they actually recast Mona Mars. So it's one actress playing it in the 45 version. It's another one that played it in the release version. So, um, but yeah, so we have this whole thing and we have the death of Camino and all these things. And the way that Vivian protects Marlowe is also a nice way for them to bond because again, in the book, it was, Mona uh, Mars doing that when she really didn't necessarily have that much of a reason other than her buying what Marla was selling as far as Eddie Mars is a killer. He just uses Camino as the weapon rather than him pulling the trigger himself. And in this, she just storms out of the room and we never see her again. I haven't read the book in a long time, but the impression I got from what I remember is that uh, Mona Mars was written as this very impressionable character, not very bright, and therefore easily manipulative, right? Or manipulable. With the, that's, this is the one problem I have with including Vivian into this scene, and that it renders, uh, Mona's appearance anticlimactic. It's like she's just there to sass back, and then we never see her again. 
and there's this sort of build up to her that's just kind of disappointing once once they have her, once we finally see her and I'm, I haven't seen the other version of this I'm just curious as to how much of an impact she has in that version was she more memorable in that because I found the character like like I've seen this movie many times and every time we reach that scene I go oh yeah there's that character she's more sympathetic she seems to be a lot softer well I think she throws the drink still at Marlowe and storms out and he still gives that whole She's good. I like her, but she's not nearly as angry as the other one, as the one that you're used to. But yeah, her inclusion, again, it's kind of unnecessary. It really is. It's just a way to get us to a point and then get us to the Eddie Mars conclusion, which I don't think is necessarily in the book. I think that Mars just kind of gets away with it when it comes to the book. This whole thing going back to Geiger's house and his boys waiting outside, which it doesn't really necessarily make a whole lot of sense of kill anybody who comes out this door kind of thing that he must have set up with them because he comes rushing out the door at one point and they end up murdering him. So Marlowe does kill a man in this movie. He does manage to kill Camino. So he gets a little bit of blood on his hands, but he manages to keep his hands clean when it comes to Mars, which I find very interesting that he's culpable, but he can kind of sleep at night thinking that he didn't do anything to cause Mars to get killed. How many times did Marla go back to Gaga's house? It must be five or six times. It, it just seems a little odd that he keeps going back to the house and then going back to the house, going back to the house, and then the door gets machine gunned. It was a lot, yeah. I mean, yeah, he had to have shown up at least four times at Geiger's house. I love that he has the keys. Like, when did he get the keys to this house? Well, that's also in the pre-release version. There's a whole thing of him going around the house and looking around, finding keys, finding the sucker book of uh, who uh, Geiger was giving the pornography to. Yeah, there's a whole scene of him investigating the house and looking around more, so... That one, I don't necessarily know why they cut that. There are other parts where they cut where you're just like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And then there are other parts where they would redo dialogue. And they did a really good job of ADRing some dialogue in here that I never would have picked up. And if you watch it knowing that they ADR'd this stuff, you can kind of see that their mouths don't match, but it takes a lot to really even notice that. And it's only like a line here, a line there. So it's not like entire speeches or anything. I figured that somebody has already done this. I did look for a fan edit of this version to, to, to see if somebody took the pre-release and the other version and put them together kind of in the, you know, definitive version of this. And apparently somebody did, I think actually two fan editors did, but I was unable to find that out there, but I would be very curious to see here's the whole thing together because some of those dialogue changes that I was just talking about with the ADRing, those actually change a couple lines. Like when he brings Carmen home, Vivian is not there. Like he just talks to Norris, you know, after Carmen is found at the scene of the crime, he just talks to Norris, says, put her in bed. You didn't see me. Don't tell anybody. And then in the release version, Vivian is there and he talks to her. So then that has to change the dialogue later on when he says, like, you know, what were you doing last night? And then she basically says, my cover story is 
that I was out and, you know, I slept in late this morning or something like that. So it's, it's interesting to see that they had to make a couple changes based upon the reshoots that they did. I mean, we tend to think of reshoots as being a recent phenomenon in movies because they get so much publicity when a big movie gets a lot of reshoots, particularly if it's something like a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. But reshoots are, are something that goes right way back. And they're done for a number of reasons, all of which are to do with money, of course. But, um, yeah, they're, they're not a new phenomenon. All right. We are going to take a break and play an interview with Dolly Schweitzer, author of the upcoming book, L.A. Private Eyes. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts. Or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series Tales from the Crypt. Here's what the rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. The premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. So from page to screen. So they have, nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look. 
but sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that just makes me want to rush out. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theatre is. For me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind, there's a joke for the oldies. Um, right. like, Who's Prince? Who's right. he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a psycho, right, can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker and Stitcher and put in the search box from page to screen. So, Dahlia, last time we spoke, we spoke all about zombies and viral outbreaks and these kind of things. Now we are somewhere completely different as far as I can tell, unless you can draw some tenuous connections between these two things and talking about L.A. Mysteries. And I'm very curious how you decided to make that your next project. The way that they are connected has to do with my methodology. And I'm actually teaching a class this term um, on the private detective. And as I've explained to my students, it doesn't matter if you don't care about the private detective, you think Raymond Chandler is overrated, you have no interest in film or television, whatever, that's all fine. The fundamental lesson that I'm trying to get across is the is seeing patterns. And that is what fuels my work. That is what gets me out of bed in the morning. That is what I find so fascinating about human nature, is just noticing when things happen over and over and over again, And then sort of wondering, well, why? You know, why is that happening over and over again? And then what happens at those interesting points where the template diverges from what's expected? So with going viral, the initial interest in the book was, hey, there are all these outbreaks that are coming out in 1995. What's that about? And then looking at what happened to the outbreak narrative after 9-11, And then looking at what happened to the outbreak narrative in sort of present day, like why the contemporary incarnation with zombies is so popular and prevalent. So it's funny because even though the superficial topics are completely different, it is really sort of the same approach where I I moved to L.A. and I started, uh, I mean, I've always loved reading detective stories. You know, I grew up reading Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes and all the classics. Uh, and then when I moved to LA, I really wanted to read detective stories that were set in Los Angeles because there was something really thrilling about seeing that extra dimension to the city in which I lived. And then I started noticing patterns and I started noticing, you know, Hey, this is weird. It's always a white dude. What's that about? Um, and it's always a white dude who has some kind of broken or dysfunctional home life. And it's often, a white dude and, you know, who has like a lot of integrity and isn't really in it for the money. And like, what's that about? And why is it that you've got, you know, Philip Marlowe on one hand from what feels like a hundred years ago. And then you've got the Lincoln lawyer with Mickey Haller, which was a movie that came out not that long ago. And so it's the same kind of fascination with patterns. And what is it in our society that's fueling those patterns? So what are those signposts for you? You talked about the way that 9-11 changed the zombie narrative, the way that we are today. What are those those turning points as far as the detective narrative? Really fascinating that I discovered once I started to look at it more closely 
is that there kind of aren't. The character, as I said, of, of like the Lincoln lawyer really is, you know, Philip Marlowe with just a couple superficial tweaks, but it's basically the same character. Even in 2018, there's such a shortage of female private eyes, for instance. Uh, and just in 2016, Shonda Rhimes, who normally everything she touches turns to gold, put out this TV show called The Catch, where it's a, a female-led investigation agency, uh, and it failed. Uh, and so it was kind of like, wow, okay. And then why is there this shortage of African-American private eyes? Why is it that if we do have an African-American detective, he's inevitably on the police force, uh, he's some white detective sidekick, and or his sidekick is a woman. And that's still the case. I mean, Devil in a Blue Dress is a great movie, and it was a box office failure. Why? So there kind of haven't been any turning points. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking about female detectives who I have followed over the years, and almost every single one of them has been canceled, um, if not all of them. But I've enjoyed them in their various roles. But yeah, and then I also can't think of any that were specifically set in Los Angeles. I mean, I it's been a long time since I've seen V.I. Warshawski, so I can't remember where that one was set. It's set in Chicago, but I do talk about it kind of at length in my female detective chapter because there is such a shortage of female private eyes in Los Angeles and Chicago is an urban area that's not totally different from Los Angeles. And with V.I. Warshawski, what is fascinating to really deconstruct is how they changed the character from the books to the movie. And I think one of the reasons why that movie was such a failure is that they really... I don't want to say that they like Hollywoodized her character, but they definitely tried to make her character less maybe radical. That's not really the best word, but they basically tried to make her more of this sort of stereotypical woman who's wondering if she's like, she'd be a good mom and her boss is telling her that she'd be, you know, a better housewife than a detective. And she's worried about her weight and we see her on her scale. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that when you have a female private eye, they're either going to be a good private detective or they're going to be a good woman. And they can never be both. And so in the movie, you are hit over the head with the fact that she is not a good woman. And by not being a good woman, I don't mean that she robs banks. I mean that her house is a mess. She's not married. She doesn't have a kid. You know, it's like all these things that normally represent success and accomplishment for women are denied to her and are made a much bigger deal. And one really fascinating difference is in the movie, they give her a sidekick, right? Because the female detective couldn't possibly work on her own. But her sidekick is a child. And then, spoiler alert, by the end of the movie, she adopts the child and becomes the child's mom. The balance is set correct. And does she end up with a uh, a boyfriend or future husband? Yeah, very disappointing. And what's crazy is they... I forget which studio was producing it, but they thought it was going to be an enormous hit. They they intended to make it a franchise. They were planning for sequels. I mean, they were really dumbfounded when the movie bombed. The only other female detective in the movies, because most of the ones that I'm thinking of are television, so things like uh, uh, The Profiler and what was the one with uh, 
uh, where it was the woman working for the witness protection program. The only other female detective movie that I can think of in recent memory is One for the Money, which again was a tremendous flop. Even, I mean, I talk about TV in the book, but, but even in TV, most of the detectives that you see are working for the cops or they're working for the FBI. They're part of a team. They're part of an establishment. They're part of a network. You know, they don't have the wherewithal, according to Hollywood, to be these sort of independent rogue agents. For instance, in The Catch, which was the Shonda Rhimes show that uh, that failed, Again, she wasn't working alone. She was part of an agency. She was part of a team because I guess, you know, the woman can't do anything on her own. And then one of the, I don't even know if it was a B plot because it's a fairly consistent presence is the movie starts out where she's been hired to protect her client from this con man. And then she fails and the con man steals millions of dollars, not only from her client, but from her. And then we find out, she finds out, that the con man is actually her fiancé who was conning her to get the money from the clients and stealing her money. And guess what? They love each other. Not only does he stick around as her boyfriend, but he even helps her with detective work. So it kind of makes you want to throw things at the screen. Well, you talked about African-American detectives, female detectives. When you're talking about Los Angeles, I'm surprised I can't think of any Latino detectives at all. I actually can't either. And again, I'm not trying to imply that my research is 100% comprehensive. I would be delighted to be proven wrong. But I can't think of any Latino private eye. There are Latinos who work within police force, like in The Shield. Um, you know, you have a Latino who's like the police captain and all that. But I can't think of a private detective who's Latino. I can think of Louis Guzman being the right-hand man of Terrence Stamp in something like The Limey. But Louis Guzman on his own, doing his own thing. That's the show I'd kind of like to see. No, and it's fascinating. And one of the things that I talk about in my book is there was a real-life detective called Samuel Marlowe, who was uh, a sort kind of, not, I don't know if a consultant, but like a source of inspiration for both Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Dashiell Hammett's detective is Sam Spade, and then, of course, Raymond Chandler has Philip Marlowe. As the story goes, Philip Marlowe did not realize that Samuel Marlowe was black. And then eventually they met up and it was kind of like, oh, wow, I had no idea. And Samuel Marlowe had you know, been given, giving uh, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett content for their books and guidance and stuff. And they have tried to make a TV show about Samuel Marlowe, which would be amazing. And unsurprisingly, that also has not made it to the screen. So what kind of patterns did you find when you were looking at all of these mysteries overall? One thing that happens again and again, which is a fundamental difference from the cozy mystery. So in the book, I set up the hard-boiled mystery, which is what we're talking about now with Raymond Chandler and Philip Marlowe. And then there's the cozy mystery, which is the more traditional mystery that came out of England. And that's where you have Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes. And with the cozy mystery, what ends up happening is you have an isolated group of characters, you know, in a small village, on the Orient Express, whatever. And then there's one person, um, or it might be, you know, one person with an accomplice who's the evil seed that kills people, you know, that, that stirs up trouble. And then the detective isolates that person, identifies them. They are plucked out of the situation. And then life goes back to being cute and normal and placid and all that. 
in the LA private detective, what happens over and over again, and I liken it to sort of when you have um, a little string or, you know, piece of thread sticking out of a sweater and you're like, I'm just going to give it a little tug, rip it off. And then suddenly the entire sweater has collapsed. So what happens in these stories is the initial request for the private detective is quite often super basic. You know, I think my husband's having an affair, my daughter's gone missing, whatever, something really specific. And then the private detective starts looking into it. And inevitably, we find out that the missing daughter has actually been kidnapped by a sex trafficking ring. And that sex trafficking ring is being, you know, orchestrated by the mayor of the town. And all these people from Hollywood are involved in the sex trafficking ring, and it becomes this massive tangled web. And so that is really like polar opposite uh, narrative structure from the cozy mystery. It feels almost like a television show where you have the A plot and the B plot, and eventually you find out that the A plot and the B plot are the plot. And that was one nice thing that I liked about LA Confidential was when we realized that the Russell Crowe mystery is the same as the Guy Pierce mystery and that they should be working together. And even that even ties into the Kevin Spacey mystery as well. So you have all of these things coming together instead of, and it, they fracture the, detective rather than having the one detective, the one lone detective. That was one thing that you pointed out is that often these guys will not have anyone else that is just one man alone versus the city versus the corruption. You know, LA Confidential, it's obviously the the various detectives are part of the police force, so they aren't really private detectives. But I also talk about LA Confidential in my book because you get that sort of breakdown where you have Guy Pierce's character versus the Bud White character, and they're kind of isolated within the police force. So they're kind of working on their own within the police force. So you do have some interesting elements of the private detective that are sort of just slightly masked in order to fit within the this new narrative. But you do also have the idea of, you know, the, the police chief who is up to no good and, the, you know, the whole conspiracy on the part of the LAPD. And even though there are some minor deviations, you can still kind of fit it within the private eye template. And I also talk in my book about the shield, partly because there is such a shortage of African-American private detectives that I look at what happens when you have an L.A. police detective who is an African-American and an African-American woman to boot. Uh, so I do talk a bit about some some police shows when I feel like it helps kind of elaborate on my argument. Well, one thing that you've made abundantly clear as we've been talking through this or the audience should realize this is that you're talking more about movies than necessarily about the books on which they're based. And I think that's very fitting because it feels like the history of pulp fiction and detective stories, hard-boiled detectives, is so intertwined with the Hollywood story to the fact that so many of the writers who produced these were also behind the scenes when it came to writing the, f the films themselves. Yes, and it is interesting how, you know, I mean, Raymond Chandler uh, wrote the screenplay for Double Indemnity. I mean, there's they were definitely very much part of the sort of Hollywood industry. That Chandler's work would be adapted so many times and then him adapting Kane's work. I mean, it just feels like they were all drinking from the same dish. No, and I, I mean, I talk about that and, and it is documented that they all kind of inspired each other. And so I don't know what their personal dynamics were like. I don't know if they actually hung out. 
but they definitely were drinking from the same dish, as you say. So when it comes to the detective story and the, the hard-boiled detective, was Chandler one of the first to write about Los Angeles as being that stomping ground? Yeah, so the Maltese Falcon had been San Francisco. Uh, and so Raymond Chandler is the one who really brought the detective to Southern California with the big sleep. And then it would kind of, it would kind of stick. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was kind of, Dashiell Hammett brought it, kind of helped build the tropes with the Maltese Falcon, but it was still, you know, in San Francisco. And then, I mean, I, Maybe there was someone who, I mean, I know that Raymond Chandler, as I said, was inspired by the real life adventures of Samuel Marlowe, but Raymond Chandler, I feel like really established the brand of the Elliot Private Eye, which was then, of course, reinforced by Humphrey Bogart's portrayal in The Big Sleep. People talk about film noir as a, a movement when it's really more of a stylistic set of conventions. And I'm curious as far as how much before film noir really came I can't even say into vogue, but into use were these detective novels and and stories coming out. One of the things I talk about in my book is the significance of film noir. And of course, the significance of film noir as it's connected to uh, German expressionism. And so I think it, it is really interesting to trace the line that comes from, you know, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari to these sort of noir films. And then you look at a movie like Double Indemnity, which isn't a classic detective story per se. You know, I mean, it's an insurance investigator. Movies like that really sort of helped set the tone. And also, as a result of World War II, the Hollywood industry didn't have a lot of people to write movies for them. So that's why they turned not only to these crime writers, writers, but also to these crime stories that were showing up in, you know, the Black Mask magazine and all that. There was definitely this flow from the written word to the screen. Also, that whole idea of the disenfranchisement of the what the war caused seems to play right into both film noir and the private detective trying to figure out the world now, this new world. And I find it very interesting of how often madness will play a role inside of these, these films. You know, I'm thinking specifically of something like Murder My Sweet, where, you know, they lock up Marlowe in an insane asylum for a little bit. And that frustration with, uh, you know, sort of feeling like you were being lied to by the establishment, this disappointment with the, you know, the police department and this idea that the police department, you know, wasn't necessarily going to come up with the right answers to help you. Um, the idea of the sort of the rogue individual who is breaking the rules, but he's doing it for a good cause. I think all those sort of sentiments are very emblematic of the period after World War II. Um, I have a quote that's from uh, Carol John Daly, who wrote short stories for Black Mask. And he's really along with Raymond Chandler, credited with helping to shape the mold of the private detective. His detective significantly was set in New York, but you can kind of see from this quote how this detective would go on to uh, inspire detectives like Bogart's uh, Philip Marlowe. So Race Williams describes himself as, the police don't like me, the crooks don't like me, I'm just a halfway house between the law and crime, sort of working both ends against the middle. Right and wrong are not written on the statutes for me, nor do I find my code of morals in the essays of long-winded professors. 
my ethics are my own. So I feel like that really encapsulates the alienation of the private detective, the fact that he's really kind of always in between, that he's he's working for good, but he's not one of the good guys. And then the success of Daly's stories would then encourage the editors of Black Mask to feature other crime writers, such as Dashiell Hammett, and then Hammett would inspire Raymond Chandler and James Kane, and then Chandler and Kane are the ones who moved it to Los Angeles. Well, I suppose that kind of goes back to what you're talking about as far as the private eye being able to move through the strata. And then if you tried to put a woman into that role or a person of color into that role, then they wouldn't necessarily be able to move through that strata because they've gotten one of the keys just taken away from them. When did you first start to see or when were there initially female detectives of the hard-boiled nature or people of color being uh, hard-boiled detectives? What's fascinating about women is that we do have some early versions of the female private eye, but she's inevitably very sexualized. So one of the early female private eyes is a character named Honey West. She was a, a, char- a book, a literary character, and then um, they made a TV show out of it. And she's always being described as delicious and luscious and voluptuous. Uh, and you're always being told, you know, what her measurements are and how sexy she is. And um, the book titles are hilarious. There's Girl on the Loose, Honey in the Flesh, Kiss for a Killer, Bombshell, right? So really kind of playing up her sexuality. And then the TV show was only on the air on ABC for a year. And it was the first regular TV series with a female detective. And interestingly, the the male author who created her said that he came up with the name Honey West because Honey was the name for someone that you really like. And she lives in the West. So that's her name. Um, and she was inspired by she was a, a child of Marilyn Monroe and Mike Hammer. So we've kind of got the hard-boiled detective and then the breathy sex pot. And what's fascinating, very similar to what I was talking about with the catch, is when she had an, um, a partner, but a male partner, of course, to help her out. But when they brought it to TV, he's frequently swooping to her rescue and she'll be, you know, beaten up by some thugs and he comes and he rescues her. She's kidnapped and he comes and he rescues her. And then what's amazing is he also, even though supposedly, you know, he's not her boss, but he chastises her and he tells her, you know, like, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done this. Your behavior's out of line. It's definitely problematic is like an understatement. But the show, as I said, it was only on there for a year and it didn't do too well. Um, and then there's another private eye that came out uh, in the late 70s called Allison B. Gore. Gordon, but that did not get uh, moved to the television or movie screen. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking of uh, Macmillan and Wife. Did you ever watch that one? Oh, no. oh my God, that was that was one of those Saturday morning, or that's when I saw them. But they were probably more of a weekly detective show. They would uh, rotate with things like Banachek and Columbo, McLeod, and then there was Macmillan and Wife. And I like that it's not even her name it's and wife and it was one of the most sexist things ever you really need to to check it out i will check it out and i i talk in the book about the tv show remington steel 
in the opening credits, they set up the premise of the show. So you can even just watch the opening credits. But the idea is, is that Laura Holt is the private eye and she went to private eye school and she's a licensed private eye and she's actually very good at being private eye. But she opens up her own detective agency and nobody comes because a private detective shouldn't be a woman. So then what she, and this, she literally says this. And so then what she does is she invents this character, Remington Steele, who does not exist, but just so that she can have a male's name in the title of the detective agency. And then, of course, Remington Steele is always out of the office when clients show up and on a business trip and a meeting. Um, and then once she puts this male label on it, then people are lining up around the block because, of course, that's okay. And then the way that Pierce Brosnan gets into it is very similar to the catch. I don't know if the catch was inspired by, by this is he is a con man, much like the, the male, uh, significant other in the catch. And he's trying to con her. He's trying to con Laura Holt and she figures out what's going on, of course, because she's very smart. But then she ends up hiring him to pretend to be Remington Steele. So he doesn't have any detective skills, but he's the head of the detective agency purely because he's a man and she's the boss behind the scenes. And of course, on the show, they make they call attention to this a lot. And like when they're interviewing secretaries, the secretaries keep assuming that Remington is the boss and they have to keep explaining like, no, he's not the boss. Laura Holt is the boss and secretaries are confused because why would a woman be the boss? Uh, and then, you know, whenever they solve a case, even if Laura did all the solving, the newspapers never mention her by name. They only talk about Remington Steele. So it's a really interesting commentary on sort of sexism and misogyny. As you're talking, I'm thinking of things like Castle, where we have the outsider coming in, and he's the one to solve all of these crimes, even though he's working with this very skilled detective, or even the Bloodhound Gang. Once you start to recognize the pattern, you'll start seeing it everywhere. Now, how about African-Americans? When did African-Americans start to become hard-boiled detectives? The most well-known private eye is Evie Rollins, who was the character that was invented by Walter Mosley. And even though um, the books are more recent, uh, it's the books are set in the 40s and through the 60s. So it's they're very similar to the era of um, Philip Marlowe. So if you watch Devil in a Blue Dress, it's going to feel... Like, it's all from the same era. The very first private eye that showed up um, in a movie was the black, a black Sherlock Holmes. The character is not, his name is not Sherlock Holmes. They're just, it's called a black Sherlock Holmes because he is a black detective. But that movie came out in the early 20th century. And it, it was part of those movies where you had an all-black cast, even if it was produced by white people, and they thought that it would appeal to African-Americans because, look, we have African-American actors. But the movie is a parody, and, of course, everyone is very, uh, you know, kind of dumb and clumsy and sort of a laughingstock. So, of course, African-Americans were like, well, we, we're not into this. I mean, this is disgusting. It actually became popular with white audiences. Because African-Americans were like, you know, this is too humiliating. The film overall was a commercial and critical failure because it didn't, you know, hit where it was supposed to with its target audience. And so then what's crazy is you really do not get another black detective until in the heat of the night, 50 years later in 1967. 
And that's the one with Sidney Poitier, who plays a black police detective. So again, it's a police detective, of course, not a private eye. That film was very successful. And still, this idea of the African-American detective was really avoided. And in fact, when you look at a lot of these detective narratives, you'll see that over and over again, the detective is white and the criminal is black. Um, and I talk in my book, for instance, about studies that were done with the TV show Cops. And Cops frequently has white police officers and non-white criminals. And so it's really kind of reinforcing this idea that the African-American is always going to be on the wrong side of the law. And or you'll have a show where there's like a team and that's where you'll get stuff like Criminal Minds or CSI, Law and Order. And then you'll have like the one token African-American because, you know, just have a little bit of diversity. You'll have one. But then the rest of the cast will be white. Maybe you'll have an, an Asian for good measure. Uh, one of the few times where you have an African-American detective who has white sidekicks, although they're not they're more babysitters than sidekicks is Beverly Hills Cop. And that's when you have the Detroit police officer played by Eddie Murphy who comes to Beverly Hills and, you know, he's a little bit out of control and so the white guys have to keep him in line. But most of the time you're going to have a sidekick situation like in Die Hard where the successful cop is white and then his sidekick, who is sometimes there just for comic relief, is going to be the African-American. Yeah, I always found it kind of objectionable. We were talking about... uh the the cast where you have the one black guy on it and something like CSI where you had Gary Dorden and he ends up having this horrible gambling addiction. So he has this inherent weakness to his character that will eventually lead to his downfall. And it's like, oh, why does it have to be that guy? I know I have um, like a PowerPoint slide I show in class, which is like the the promo shot of all these shows, you know, Southland and everything, just amazing when you see like an entire screen full of all these group shots and in each group shot, one black person. Going back to that black Sherlock Holmes, I found it interesting that, yeah, the name of the movie is a black Sherlock Holmes, but yet our main character is kind of Nick Carter, at least with a K. So yeah, it's, I think a lot of people these days don't remember who Nick Carter was and all of the books and all of the series that were around about him. But then when you listed who his assistant was, I just groaned internally when I was reading that. There's a lot of groaning that happens. And that's why I think it's so fantastic, you know, that uh, Walter Mosley created the character of Easy Rollins. And that's why it was so great that they made a movie out of it. And that's why it's so disappointing that the movie failed, and obviously they have not made any more. Wasn't there a passing narrative in that as well? The premise is that uh, the reason, because Evie isn't even a detective, you know, in the movie. Like, he's out of work, he's desperate for money, and then a white detective hires him because he's looking for this woman, Daphne Monet, and Daphne Monet frequents jazz clubs. And as you know, a white detective would stand out like a sore thumb in a jazz club. So Easy is hired because of his skin color, because of his ability to sort of cross these boundaries and, you know, it go vanish into this world and look for Daphne Monet. Um, and then as inevitably happens with the private detective novel, you know, everything spirals and it becomes this big web. And then and we find out that Daphne Monet uh, was in a relationship with this guy who was running for mayor. Um, and 
the incumbent, the opponent, who everyone thinks is going to win, it turns out that he was involved in pedophilia. And Daphne Monet's character has photos that expose the incumbent and his pedophilia. And she has, she has been asked to leave town by the family of the guy who's running against the incumbent because she is a quarter African American. So she looks white, but she's a quarter African American. And so the guy that she's been dating, his family pays her to get out of town because they think he's good. She's going to ruin his political career. And so she uses that money to buy these photos. Um, that are proof of the current mayor's pedophilia. And then once she delivers those photos, she thinks everything's going to be great because now her boyfriend is definitely going to be mayor because the incumbent's political career is destroyed. And then there's a very sad scene at the end of the movie where he basically says, you know, you're a quarter black. I can't be with you. It doesn't even matter if I've got this campaign clinched, like we're never going to work out. And she leaves town crying. So things aren't set right at the end of the story. No, and that's what happens. I mean, think about Chinatown. I mean, even in The Big Sleep, you, you don't get happy endings in these movies. So what came first? Are you teaching the class or are you writing the book? I taught a class on private detectives in Los Angeles because they'd always been, not even of guilty pleasure, but I've always had a soft spot for, you know, detective stories in Los Angeles. And I was like, you know, this, this would be interesting to kind of dig my teeth into because I always feel like whenever I teach a class that gives me the excuse and the opportunity to learn something inside out in a way that I feel like you, you don't when you're not being compelled to teach it to other people. And so this was a few years back. And when I was putting together the syllabus for the class, I just assumed that this book, this hypothetical book was out there. And, you know, there's a gazillion books written about noir. And so I was like, oh, I'm sure there are a gazillion books written about this specific kind of branch of noir. And I was really shocked that there was nothing. And so when I was putting together the syllabus, it ended up being, of course, a lot more work because I ended up having to pull, you know, an article from here, an essay from here, an excerpt from here. And I was like, wow, someone's got to write this book. And I didn't really want to do it. I just was like, someone needs to do it. And then what's funny is I still hadn't even finished going viral. And I was chatting with my editor at Rutgers. And she just very casually was like, you know, are there ever any other books that you've thought about writing? Any other topics that you feel, you know, have been ignored? And I said, yeah, I always found it really weird that there's nothing about the L.A. private detective. And she nodded and she was like, yeah, that's true. There really isn't. And then two weeks later, I get an email from her and she says, well, you know, I brought your topic up in our editors meeting and everyone's on board. So if you could just put together a proposal, we can move forward on the private eye project. And I was like, wait, what? It's become a project. And so honestly, that's how it happened was she thought it was a good idea. And I was and then kind of that's why in the acknowledgments, I thank her for tricking me into writing the book. Because I still hadn't even finished going viral. And I thought once I finished going viral, I need some downtime. And yeah, she was like, you know, can you deliver the manuscript by uh, August 2017? And I was just like, what? So yeah, that's how it happened. Now, the version that you sent me has a very simple title. Has that grown exponentially since then? No, it's part of a series that Rutgers has. It's a series. It's called Quick Takes. 
And it's kind of like the BFI film classics, if you're familiar with them, where they're sort of shorter books and they're um, intended for more of like a general audience than snooty academics. Uh, and so in that series, all the titles are like that. Like there's no there's no subtitle. So it'll be, you know, like quick takes and then it'll have like a zombie cinema or something like that. So that's why the title is so simple. But I feel like it, it encapsulates what it needs to encapsulate. So when does L.A. Private Eyes hit the streets? In March of 2019. Wow. So this is like an exclusive pre-interview. Oh yeah. No, nobody, nobody's no, I mean, that's why that, that video that I sent you, like it's not even finished yet. Where is the best place for people to keep up with you and your projects? The place with the least white noise, I would say is my website. This is Dahlia.com and Dahlia is spelled ironically like the black Dahlia, D-A-H-L-I-A. So it's this is Dahlia.com, all one word. And then of course there's uh, Facebook and Twitter and blah, blah, blah. But there's, you know, the accompanying white noise and the links to articles that I find interesting and stuff. So if you want just the bare essentials, focus on my website. But if you want Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash who is Dahlia. Mitchum is still Marlowe and murder is still murder. In Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. Robert Mitchum is Hello, Marlowe. You shoot people, don't you, Mr. Marlowe? I'm a private investigator. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. I was neat, clean-shaven, and sober. I was calling on 10 million pounds. Sarah Miles is Charlotte. She's worth it. Suppose you want money, too? All I itch for is money. For 50 pounds a day, I dodge bullets. I risk my future, the hatred of the cops. Thank you very much. Put my card here on the table. Why? Why? He's crazy. Shut up, Agnes. Joan Collins is Agnes. What means her business? Richard Boone is Canino. Boone kills. Candy Clark is Camilla. Candy kisses. Edward Fox is Brody. He's the Mark. Oliver Reed is Eddie Mars. He's the mob. John Mills is Carson. He's the cop. And James Stewart is the general. His business with Marlowe is private. I'm afraid my girls have all the usual vices. You're cute. Handsome, too. I like you. Camilla likes you a lot. She has a great little body, doesn't she? Yeah. You know, you should see mine sometime. I want my pictures, Joe. You're playing too rough, Marlowe. They're all soft, Marlowe, compared to you. I told you the first time I met you, I'm a detective. I work at it, lady. I don't play at it. Come to where the sex, blackmail, and murder is. Come to Marlowe Country. Mitchum is Marlowe in Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. We're back and we were talking about The Big Sleep. Now, Terry, I know you're so excited to talk about this. One of your favorite films of all times. Tell us, how did you enjoy the 1978 remake of The Big Sleep? Or sorry, reinterpretation of The Big Sleep starring Mr. Robert Mitchum. I thought you were going to say a Sherry Kafara movie, but uh, I didn't enjoy it because it's a Michael Winner movie for a start, so it's a piece of hydrogen <laughs> sulfide. The title sequence is... Someone driving a Mercedes Benz 
on a freeway in in England um, to get to the Sternwood Mansion. I mean, the cast is the thing I like about this film, and not much else apart from nudity. I mean, nudity is always welcome. But um, I mean, you got Mitch and you got Sarah Miles playing the um, older Sternwood daughter, and she's not very good, to be honest with you. She's got the charisma of a damp tissue. Oh, she's uh, terrible. She is really, really bad in this. Uh, but then you've got people like Candy Clark playing the younger sister, and she's kind of cool. I always like Candy Clark in movies. You've got Richard Boone playing Lash Canino, um, even though it does look like he's in his cups a little bit and, and doesn't give an A game there. Edward Fox playing Joe Brody, which is a nice choice. And the cop is played by John Mills, which I kind of liked, and he does give good. James Stewart playing General Sternwood. Oliver Reed playing Eddie Mars, and Oliver Reed does seem to be kind of alert and awake and off the booze for a little bit in this one, and gives a real menace to the character, which I like. Harry Andrews plays the butler, and it's always good seeing Harry Andrews in movies. Again, gay actor. And then you've got Richard Todd, who was in The Damn Busters and things like that, playing another cop. And you get down to the guy playing Arthur Geiger, the the dead um, pornographer, and that's actually John Justin, who played the prince in The Thief of Baghdad about 38 years earlier, which was kind of cool for me. But, um, yeah, it doesn't work well. The direction's crap. I think the dialogue is either copied from the previous movie or a lot of it's from Chandler. But Mitchum kind of does a nice world-weary Marlowe. Don't doesn't end on the relationship the way that uh, the Bogart version does. It's worth seeing just for completeness, I think and not worth seeing for too much else. I mean, mostly I enjoyed it for the character actors I saw turning up in there. I was very happy to see Don Henderson showing up as the mechanic at the end, and I was just like, oh my god, I know that voice. I know that voice. Who is that? And then finally I realized that he is the very snotty guy on the panel at in Star Wars who is finally uh, ends up getting choked by Darth Vader. I was like, oh, okay, now I know. So another Star Wars connection. I got to give my two cents on this. This is Raymond Chandler by way of Amicus Films. Where do I begin with this? Sarah Miles is so miscast. It's it's just it's really annoying anytime she appears on the screen. It's it, she, they're trying to push her to be sexy and alluring and she's just not. Uh, she tries to do an American accent during the first half of the film and just kind of drops it after that. Candy Clark, I get that she was hot off American Graffiti, but she's terrible in this. I have no idea what she's doing in this film. It, it's this weird kind of like, okay, the character is supposed to have a bit of an arrested development character, but she's supposed to be this young character, whereas Candy Clark is like an adult woman pretending to be a child. And it's just weird. And also, she kind of sticks out in a bad way where you almost think that she's a British accent trying to play an immature American. You know, that's how the performance comes across to me. Um, Joan Collins is kind of good in it. Edward Fox, it was fun to see him play Joe Brody. It's weird how they reinterpret that character. It's nice seeing like old stalwarts like John Mills and, you know, uh, what's his name? Richard Todd. I'm a big Colin Blakely fan. I, I, it was fun to see him turn up. Uh, but but yeah, this the stuff with like uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart. It's it's like he's he he plays a character in this one note sort of. I'm so sad. I'm sad. And and I and they really really press how much he longs for Rusty Regan, which is 
a little uncomfortable after a while to the point where you don't you don't get why Marlo, you know, is just just so sympathetic to this guy. And Robert Mitchum, who was fantastic as Marlo in Farewell, My Lovely. I mean, Mitchum's okay in this. He's got presence. He's got style, but he's not Philip Marlowe. It's almost like he's playing James Bond. He's playing this sort of like super PI kind of character with great suits and this awesome car. And he's just one step ahead of everybody. And, and Michael Winter does this thing where he's trying to, he's like directing a movie like he's doing like an Agatha Christie adaptation with the weird screen transitions to flashbacks when things are being explained and revealed and stuff like that. It's just, it's just a mess of a film. And the stuff with Oliver Reed, I, I agree with you, Terry, that he's a, in some spots, he's a little more controlled, but then he'll do like this little subtle swing for the fence thing, like when he's trying to offer Marlowe money. And he's just like doing this, like this outrageously hammy way. And I, I just find myself thinking, gee, was Oliver Reed drunk in this? He doesn't seem to be. Oh, there you go. He was drunk in this. You know, I really, really dig Oliver Reed with all of his flaws and, and everything. But the film, it's, it's also a weird film in that the fact that it tries to be a little more faithful to the novel than the 1946 version is what kind of does it in because none of the stuff in a modern context makes sense anymore. They found no creative way to update it. It's not like The Long Goodbye, which which is not faithful to the novel at all, but it feels like a modern interpretation of Philip Marlowe in a way that, that succeeds in a way I don't even think Robert Altman intended. Uh, you know, it's the only modern interpretation, because I've seen the James Gardner version. I've seen this Robert Mitchum version. I even checked out the pilot episode of a, of a, of a TV series, Marlowe, which you can see on YouTube, that was produced like a few years back. And none of those interpretations work in a modern context, except for Elliot Gould's interpretation of Long Goodbye, which is ironic because he's playing that character as sort of this like man out of time kind of thing. But it works. Uh, but here, Robert Mitchum's Marlowe, you don't get the sense that this guy only owns one suit and he's living paycheck to paycheck. And he's, he's a bit of a shaggy dog character. You know, Mitchum's Marlowe in this one is, is, is slick, one step ahead of everyone. And, and it's odd how they try to, like, justify him being an American P.I. in England. Well, yeah, by saying he literally stayed there after the war. I mean, Mitchum was much better in, in, around this stage. It may have been a few years one way or the other in the Yakuza, where you actually mm -hmm. get a, a bit of depth from him, even though he's playing a kind of taciturn character in some ways. In that movie, he's much better. But I was thinking with the Sarah Miles thing, they named the character Charlotte, so maybe they were trying to get Charlotte Rampling to play it, and she would have been much better. I saw this movie once a long time ago, and I was convinced that Charlotte Ram uh, that Charlotte Rampling was in it. So I was shocked <laughs> rewatching this a week ago that she wasn't, because I thought I was under the impression because it was the same production team as Pharaoh My Lovely. Am I correct about that? Okay, so I thought they were in my mind. I thought they reused a lot of the same cast, but it turns out nope, it's just uh, Robert Mitchum and Richard Boone. I want to touch upon him as Lash Canino. He is so over the top, entertaining in this. There's that weird moment towards the end of the film when he gets shot where they just use the same sound effect of him screaming multiple times. It was just like, what is going on? Could they not get him to ADR like a scream or something?
we alluded to Cesar Romero in the last episode. In this one, I feel like Richard Boone is playing the Joker. And what was up with that that foot that he had going on? He had a big old cast on his foot. What was up with that? He might have had a broken foot in real life. It was his third last movie. After that, he did Winter Kills and then the Bushido Blade in '81. So he was on his way out. Yeah, I think it was Jerry Bick and Elliot Kastner did both of these. I'm trying to remember, but I know Bick for sure. And it was weird because Bick also produced The Long Goodbye. So it was like in the 70s, he was behind this one, Farewell My Lovely and The Big Sleep. And then he would also do things like Thieves Like Us and Against All Odds. And then Swing Shift, I think, was the last thing that he produced. But yeah, he must have had some sort of deal with the Chandler estate to be behind all three of those films. Yeah, it's such a disappointment, this movie. I thought I'd go back and see. Yeah, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it was a, a reasonable reinterpretation of Chandler and an eight. Yeah, we, we've already said that it's not in the right time. It's not in the right place. Marlowe is so associated with Los Angeles. And that was the whole thing. You know, the interview that I did with Dahlia was brought on by this idea of how different characters, how different detectives are related to different cities. You know, we talked a lot in the Maltese Falcon episode about Sam Spade being such a part of San Francisco. You know, you can talk about Jake Giddis is it's necessary for him to be in Los Angeles for that story, but he feels like a Los Angeles character. There are other characters who feel like they belong to the cities that they're in. Putting Marlowe as kind of a fish out of water in England but yet he seems to get around almost too well when it comes to this. I guess since he's been there since 45, 46, it makes sense when it comes to Gould being a man out of time in that he is stuck in 45, 46, whereas with Mitchum being out of place doesn't necessarily work. And then, yeah, what we were talking about earlier Pornography in 1978 is a lot different than pornography in 1945-46 or 39 when the book comes out. I've been to Piccadilly Circus. I know what kind of shops are around there. I've been to Soho. The book that he is looking at and flipping through, there's nothing really too objectionable about that. You know, I'm seeing that kind of stuff in a Playboy. I'm not even, you know, going to, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, specialty store and having to ask about things behind the counter. So that's nothing. In 78, there were magazines like Mayfair out, which was showing a lot more than that book did. And what would you want a leather bound copy of it when you can nick down to the local newsagent and pick up stuff that's, um, a lot rawer? For a lot less money, you could probably get a, a truck full of it for the price of that book. Leave it to our imagination. Don't show what's in the book. Talk about how unbelievably filthy this stuff is. If you're going to leave it as pornography, then let's talk about some real filth. You know, there should be things that we can't even talk about on this podcast without getting bleeped. You know, there, it, it is, it should be really hardcore stuff, you know, beyond Tijuana Donkey Act kind of level of stuff. Yeah. Exactly what they show us. This is a Michael Winner movie. You got to accept yeah. the fact that it's going to be a piece of shit. Yeah, I, I would say that that I would recommend for the purists out there if they they're curious to see how a 
1970s take on Philip Marlowe investigating a mystery in that period of London, if you really want to. But I would point to other British movies that tap into the, the, the classic film noirs as better options. Like there's an interesting film called Gumshoe starring Albert Finney that came out in the early 70s. May have been around this time, maybe earlier. I think it was Stephen Freer's first film, which is really, really interesting take on that. And I, and one of my favorite miniseries of all time is The Singing Detective. Where is, is Git Carter in this pantheon? You know, like, like that is, it's not a film noir, but that shows, and it's not even swinging London. It's on the outskirts. It's, it's back in the, up in the north. I mean, but it is such, a more of a powerful film than anything in here. Oh yeah, I would put Get Carter. I would place Get Carter it more in, in something like Richard Stark territory. Yeah, that and the Long Good Friday and things like that. But there is that tradition going back to as far as World War Two of British crime movies, which have their own kind of genre in a sense. They um, they started out being about post war rationing and about returned soldiers adapting to things in the same way. That a lot of American movies were, but with a distinctly British viewpoint. Things with you know, Stanley Baker and actors like that in it, and Early McGowan and Hell Drivers and all those kind of crime films. There really is a, a distinct genre there, which is separate from film noir and separate from detective movies as they are in America, but no less strong for that. Yeah, the one thing we were talking about, um, Jimmy Stewart playing General Sternwood, he's only nine years older than Mitchum in real life. And he doesn't look like he's nine years older. They look like contemporaries. So seeing poor Philip Marlowe looking as old as General Sternwood, it's like, wow. And then that just makes the relationship that he has with Camilla rather than Carmen in this film even more uncomfortable. And yeah, they keep it pure-ish with the end and showing us that it was actually Carmen who murdered uh, Rusty Regan. But yeah, that weird freaking flashback, all those weird flashbacks, just wow, did those stand out as just being awful. Yeah, it was, like I said, the transitions to the flashbacks are like something out of like Murder on the Orient Express, the Sidney Lumet version. Yeah, I like... Sidney Lumet's Murder on the Orient Express. I, I can handle that. This I couldn't handle. It made this like what needed to be this like sort of hard boiled, grittier detective story, turned it into like this weird kind of attempt to do like, oh, gee, they did this with this Agatha Christie adaptation. Let's throw it in our film. I mean, Michael Winner's a hack. I just saw Death Wish 3, and I take offense to what you're saying here because I think Death Wish 3 is a pretty brilliant film. Come on. It's entertaining. Michael Winner could deliver some very entertaining trash, but he wasn't a good director. There's like one or two scenes in in The the Big Sleep where he he places a camera in a way where like, okay, I I see this is a good shot. He frames it well, but then he just kills it with some weird, stupid shit. Going back to how like the material doesn't serve a modern interpretation, they stick with the idea they're selling porn in the back of this antique bookstore. That doesn't make any sense. Why would someone go to that effort to get porn in 1978? When I lived in England when I was a teenager, he lived a few houses behind where I lived, actually. And uh, I we had a family friend that was friends with him. Did you get to go over and hang out at his pool or anything? The family friend 
whose son I grew up and became friends with to this day, he he told me stories about. I mean, he grew up to be a journalist, and he actually interviewed him, and he said that he just he just directed for the money. He didn't give a shit. Yeah, I've heard Alex Winter tell some stories about uh, Death Wish Three and the the set atmosphere, and it did not sound like a very healthy place to be. Yeah, he was also a big supporter of Margaret Thatcher, which goes to say what kind of person you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, on that cheerful note, let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Hey, hey, Mrs. Wade. <laughs> Jenkins. Come on, let's go inside, Marlo. We want to talk to you. Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it happens every day. Right profile. Some passerby invites your eye to come her way. There'll be a lot of people looking for me as a result of my lovely wife. If it was a murderer, he murdered his wife. That's a lie. I know he didn't kill and, her. He couldn't kill anybody. It's a minor crime, a minor crime, a misdemeanor to kill your wife. The major crime is he stole my money. Your friend stole my money, and the penalty for that is capital punishment. Even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go. I like your face, too. Could you find my husband for me, please, Mr. Marler? You let the moment fly. I'm a man cannot stand confinement. Who the hell are you? Well, I'm this here private investigator who was sent here this afternoon to uh, find you. Did you come here to see me or my wife? It's not his business. Write the check, Roger. What check? Write the check, Roger. Whoa. Lady, you turn your head. You know you said the long goodbye. Never learn. You're a born loser. What do you think, Mabel? Ow! If you have any trouble, I'll back you up. I have fresh evidence now for you to reopen the Terry Lennox case. You ever think about suicide, Marlboro? Me? I don't believe in it. Don't you try to be nice to me now. I'm leaving and it's goodbye. I ain't running after you in the rain when you're catching a plane. No more. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'm through, I'm through this time. And I'm That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the long goodbye, where I'll be joined again by Terry and Eric. So, Eric, what have you been up to lately, sir? I've just been really busy trying to catch up with myself. Uh, I started a new job, and on top of that, I had a few freelance jobs I'm still doing, and just trying to catch up with myself, man. But happy to be here talking about the big sleeps. I, Terry, I hope you took this assignment a little bit more seriously. Oh, absolutely. I was dedicated. I even sat through that second 1978 version of the big sleep. And uh, apart from that, I've been kind of still on that learning curve of learning how to edit the shitty video I took in Sydney into some kind of a YouTube uh, video without it looking like a total dog's breakfast. So you didn't take the assignment seriously either. Remember I said make up stuff for the second one. So Well, I am working on something, but I, I, I'm low I'm low to announce it yet. Apart from me trying to get Jeffrey Rush in my next 
YouTube video and he doesn't seem to be available because of a court case he's currently experiencing. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty much what I've been doing. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Spend it on the girl by his mother, Jen and Rose, for her poor old headed curl. And when his wife said, Hey, now, what did you get for me? He socked her in the choppers. Such a sweet, sweet guy was he. And her tears flowed like wine.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.